I invite you to join together with me in a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we open your word and as we read in the word, we get a clue as to why we would live lives of frustration, some degree of blindness. For Lord, we read that you have set eternity upon our hearts and yet not so that we can make out the end from the beginning or the beginning from the end. So, Lord, we find ourselves oftentimes at a pause in our present, looking to the past and wondering, what happened? For we cannot make the end to the beginning. And we look into the future, and, Lord, we do so with a degree of wonder, maybe suspense. And even tomorrow, Lord, somehow eludes us. You have set eternity upon our hearts, and yet not so that we can make out the end from the beginning or the beginning for the end, and as much as we would seek to try. And yet, Lord, you have also spoken in your word and have given us a hint of the future. A future, Lord, that comes into resolution with the coming of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. A future, Lord, in which we are are welcomed into your presence and an eternal fellowship. A future, Lord, in which all things are set to right. And so we give ourselves to you in this moment with faith. And Lord, pray that you would give us that courage and that conviction to live lives, Lord, of of resolution and resolve, looking forward to that future. And with the confidence and faith, Lord, to be able to serve you with greater purpose and meaning. This we pray in the powerful name of the one, Lord, who was and who is and who is to come. Our Lord Jesus Christ, in his name we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite you to turn with me once again as we go back to our study in the the Gospel of Luke to the 12th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And there we we continue our study by going to verse 49. Now when I first read this passage, and as you heard it, you may have thought to yourself, man, this is nitroglycerin. Talks about family conflicts, explains why mother-in-laws are so difficult. Um, all these different things seem to come up in that particular passage. And, 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 we, and, and we wonder, and I, I thought to myself as I was looking at this, I'm going to have to be really careful how I handle this one. Because one false move, it could blow up in my face. And the reason I say that is because in my Bible, there is a note in the middle of our passage that reads, reads this, and it may be in your Bible as well. It says, interpreting the times. Now, now, that phrase is usually associated with what many call prophecy. Signs of the times, or interpreting the times, which describes the attention many have paid over the years and over the centuries, actually, as, as they eagerly sift through current events and look for indications of the end of the world and the coming of Christ. I'm sure many of you are already very familiar with that sort of pursuit. And there is a force of authority, it seems, behind that pursuit. And if you don't agree with the predictions, well, there must be something wrong with your walk with God. Well, I don't want that sort of judgment blowing up in my face. So let me be very clear about this from the very beginning. I believe that Jesus Christ is coming again. The Bible is very clear to that point. That was the focus, actually, of our passage, what, two weeks ago. Jesus is coming again. But I don't know that anyone can actually predict the signs or the date of his coming. 
In fact, in our passage from that that we looked at two weeks ago in Luke chapter 12, verse 40, you'll see that verse right there. You must be ready, it's a current readiness, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. It's hard to predict. It's hard to expect. And it's been my experience that some people have become so focused on the future that they forget the reality of the present. And as I've studied this passage closely, that's precisely the target that Jesus has in mind. He is so confident about God's plan for the future and of his coming again that he doesn't have to explain how it unfolds. His concern, however, is for the present, for you and I right now. What you and I need to do in this moment called now, today. And if you want a name for the time that that needs to be interpreted, that's it. Now. Today, this is our hour. The future has already been sealed in the mind of God. And and, and Christ may come this afternoon, tomorrow, this week, or maybe not for years to come. But now is our day. Now is our hour. Now is our day of reckoning. And in chapter 12 of Luke in verse 35, Jesus says, be dressed and ready right now for for service and keep your lamps burning. For this is our moment. Today is the day, now is the time, and this is our moment to be able to settle our issues with God. And with the backdrop of of a, a sure and certain future, the great then when Jesus comes again, I have it on your sermon outline that Jesus, in this passage, dispels three common misconceptions that prevent us from, from dealing seriously, of doing the serious business of, 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 of the transactions of faith that we must do now and dealing with today. I want you to look at the first of those myths. It's in verse 49. Jesus says, I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. Now, I'll be honest, there is a, there is a significant debate uh, among scholars over what the word fire refers to in this particular verse. What does it mean? There are some who, in looking at that and hearing that word fire, see this as the Holy Spirit and see this being then fulfilled on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came with what? The appearance of the tongues of fire resting over the apostles. That's a worthy worthy thought and a potential interpretation. But given the context of this passage, the context of final judgment, I believe that Jesus has maybe something else in mind. Because this is a picture that is described also by by Peter in his letter, 2 Peter chapter 3, where he writes, the present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire, future fire, for the day of judgment. And this day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. That's fire. Now you may wonder, why would Jesus look forward to such a moment? The answer is really quite simple. The fact is that this world that we have before us, this creation that is here, is in fact flawed. 
We read it that when sin struck in Eden, as God created it, it as sin entered, it was not just a, a matter of human tragedy. As sin entered, it became a tragedy for all of creation because the whole of creation fell. And as we read in the Bible, in Romans chapter 8, all creation now, currently, groans awaiting the liberation from the bondage of decay and, the, and the, now the revelation of glory. Jesus knows how fabulous creation was intended to be from the beginning and was at the time of Eden. And in his heart, he cannot wait to clear out the wreckage of sin and decay. He cannot wait to clear out the dead wood. I love the way one writer has put it. He says, here, Jesus sees the time when God's plan will have run its course and all the pain, all the heartache, all of the disasters, all of the calamities, all of the consequences of sin will be finished. And when it's all over, when judgment's done, when the family of God is united in peace, Jesus longs now to fulfill his role as judge because that would single, signal the death of sin and the dawn of the new heavens and the new earth. In verse 49, when he says, I have come to bring fire in the earth and I wish it were already kindled. You see his heart looking to the future, to that moment where it is all made right. But unspoken here are the words, but. But I have to wait, Jesus is saying. I long for that day, but. Unspoken word, but. I have to wait. Why? Go back to the picture then that was painted by the Apostle Peter in, in 2 Peter chapter 3. He said, since all these things are to be destroyed, the earth and its works then now, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Be diligent now to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. That unspoken but on the part of Jesus. I long for this but. It is being delayed. Why? He's holding it back, that fire. He's holding that back just for you and for me. He's holding it back for our sake so that you and I, at the moment, now, can have the opportunity to trust him and then join him so that the new heavens and the new earth would become inhabited by us as new creatures. For if anyone is in Christ, what are they? They are a new creature. He's holding this back for us. Now, I said that with these words, Jesus dispels the myths that keep us from dealing with him directly. That is the first myth that needs to be dispelled. This earth is not all there is. That's a myth. From our perspective, it's not hard to think that what we see is all we're going to get. It doesn't get any better than this. What we see and what we have and what we get is all really that really matters. That's the myth that we believe. In fact, the popular thought becomes almost religious. The earth is all we have, so it must be sacred, the, the, the mother of all life, so we must care for it, so it will last forever. But that's wrong. We are stewards of the earth. We are stewards of, what we, of our labor, but, but, but there is nothing permanent about anything that surrounds us. 
or anything from it that we can possess. There is only one thing permanent, and that is your soul, your eternal soul, and that is what defines you and me and the eternal God with whom we must reckon. You you may have delayed any thoughts about God, thinking that the most important thing in your life, the most important part of your life, comes in storing up for yourself a career, a portfolio, a legacy. These words from Jesus are intended to wake us up. A fire is coming, and it will burn all of that up. And then, what do you got? What are you going to do? There is one thing eternal, and that is the soul God has given you. And that needs that transaction with the eternal God to be able to embrace the fire that comes. Myth number two. And look at verse 50. Jesus says, I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is completed. (laughs) On your outline, I have it is that spirituality is not enough. There, there is a popular notion that looks at spiritual things as something warm and fuzzy. The word spirituality oftentimes replaces the word of faith because it just sounds so, so gauzy and, 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 uh, and, 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 and it feels like cuddling with angels and you know, it, it's kind of you know, represented by random acts of kindness. I almost wish that we could change that bumper sticker and say deliberate acts of kindness. But, you know, it's kind of that gauzy feeling as if the, the goal of spirituality is intended to, to civilize us so that we can all just get along. Well, trust me, I wish we could. I would love to live in a world where the birds chirp and the flowers bloom and there's a smile on the face of everyone I meet. But the fact is, out of the mind of God and into life and the mission of Jesus Christ, the goal of spirituality is, in fact, not such a happy picture. It is dealing with the horror and the legacy of sin. Your sin and mine. Because, you see, sin has made debtors of us all, and we all have a record that we cannot deny, and spirituality is the cure for that disease. Uh, Some of you may have heard that old illustration of sin from Evangelism Explosion. It's called the three-a-day illustration. Are any of you familiar with it? Good. I can break it to you. Okay. (laughs) The, The illustration is actually based upon scientific studies that have determined that the typical human entertains at least two million critical thoughts a day, making critical judgments. Two million of them a day. Two million. Now, in the Bible, if if you think that sin hasn't affected you, if you go to the Bible, you'll find that the definition given to sin uh, uh, covers things like uh, actions that you shouldn't be doing, Lack of actions that you should be doing, but even at its deepest level, Jesus defines sin as a matter of thought. You, you, you know the verses that he's saying. If you look at a woman who has with, to lust with her, that thought, has, that's sin. And if you look at somebody with hate, you as much as committed murder. So that's all an issue of thoughts. Okay, so now add this together. You have two million thoughts a day. Now imagine, just imagine. If out of my two million thoughts a day, only three of them 
would qualify as sinful thoughts. Okay, just three of them. All of the rest of my thoughts in a given day, 1,999,997 thoughts are in fact as pure as the wind-driven snow. What sort of person would you think me to be? Pretty good. You'd allow me to babysit your children, wouldn't you? Because I'd be just near to an angel. Now, don't ask my wife how many the, the, the number really is because she'll tell you. But, 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 but if, it, if it was just only three, it, it would put me really close to the angels. But then, if you added up those three, in, in the span of, of just one year, I would have recorded over 1,000 sins to my record that I cannot deny. And currently, in, in, in my lifespan this year, I will have recorded over 63,000 sins, which may give you an idea of how old I am. Now, okay, it's your turn. I've presented my case. Now you, you are the judge in a traffic court. And I am now being hauled before you to your bench. And I have 63,000 traffic tickets before me, what would you say? You're the judge. Book him, Dano. <laughs> throw him away and throw away the key. Just, you know, he, he, he is, he, he is unre- this guy's a menace to society. And to think that I can be able to come in before God and say, but I'm a spiritual person. Traffic tickets would be enough to lock me away for eternity, let alone all of the rest of the... <laughs> felonies that would be part of my record. Sin has made a debtor of us all, leaving us with records that we cannot deny. And no matter how spiritual we claim to be, how spiritual we wish to appear, random acts of kindness and all those things still leave us short. And with a desperate question, what can wash away my sin. Any of you have any answers? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so Jesus says here in this passage, chapter 12, I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is completed. What is that baptism? In the book of Romans, Baptism is defined in chapter 6 as the full cycle of his sacrifice. The death, the burial, and then the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Upon which then our records of sin is then paid. Our record of sin demands a payment, but on the cross, Jesus Christ paid it all. Just to note, as I was reading it this week, Jesus was saying, I have a baptism to undergo. I thought to myself, wait a, wait a minute, didn't he already have a baptism at the Jordan with John the Baptist? But now, thinking of the cross, that moment takes on a whole new meaning. There, together with John, John tried to back out and Jesus says, I must be baptized. And I can't help but think that that was the first chance he had to be able to articulate and predict the course of his ministry to those who would become his disciples around him, that he was willingly 
headed toward the cross and accepting his death and his burial and his resurrection as it then would be interpreted in Romans. Jesus willingly paid the price for your sin and for mine. And the goal of spiritual aspirations that we have in this moment has to take that in count. And has to begin with the cross. We cannot live lives uh, of spirituality just for the sake of spirituality and nice, warm feelings at the end of the day. Our thoughts of spirituality must bring us to our place of need and then to the answer to that need, to the sacrifice that is before us, and that is Jesus Christ on the cross. So I have to ask the question, based upon the words of Jesus, have you accepted such a wonderful gift? The future depends upon it. Quickly now, myth number three, in verse 51. And Jesus says, do you suppose I came to grant peace on earth? (laughs) Hold that question in mind. I tell you, he says, no, but rather division. From now on, five members in one household will be divided. Three against two, two against three. And then he goes on from that point. Again, one of the myths we have entertained is that it is possible through human effort and maybe supercharged human effort with some religious convictions can establish peace in the world. You know know that bumper sticker, imagine world peace. I'm sorry, world peace. (laughs) There is another bumper sticker, world peace. Um, But... It may be a noble bumper sticker, but as history records it, it is completely elusive. We can arrange treaties, we can even talk about peaceful coexistence, but in this sinful world, peace is a dream, and even Jesus, who is also called the Prince of Peace, will not solve it completely on this side of eternity. It is not solved until eternity breaks forth. The fact is, in this world... Christ offers us peace with God, and upon that you can depend. Not peace, however, within the world, and not necessarily peace even within our families. The more we live as citizens of his kingdom, in fact, may produce even more disharmony that you may experience in life. (laughs) There was a young man named Scott who I led to Christ in my ministry when I was a pastor in Chicago. We met together in, in a Bible study every week in the morning. And, and, and he was growing in his faith, but, but he found himself, uh, after several months, uh, in a relationship. He was falling in love with a young lady who, in fact, scorned anything that had to do with Christianity or with Christians. And he was so excited when the gospel all came together in his heart, and he was thrilled to accept Christ as his Lord and Savior. But then I asked him this question. I said, what are you going to do? What are you going to say if your girlfriend sees Jesus as a competitor? He told me, so well, it'll never happen. It'll never, never, never happen. But it did. And one day she told him, listen, big boy, it's either me or Jesus. Make up your mind. Remember, he came to the Bible study, he was in tears, and he asked me what he should do. I could only ask, who's got your future in hand, her or Jesus? 
Who's going to open the door to eternity? The day is coming. You have got to decide. At that particular moment, he actually chose love over the Lord and walked away. I, I, I need to add a little post note to this action. About four months ago, he searched me up on Facebook and he sent me a note. He wanted to tell me that he wanted to thank me for the patience that I had and the patience even more that God had because he, he discovered the error of his ways and it was a turbulent moment for him, but he has now been living a life of faith in Jesus Christ. Christ did not come in this moment in time to just bring peace. He came to bring decision. And it is time for you to decide. And that's the point that Jesus is making here in the Gospel of Luke. Now is the day of your decision. You know it to be true. Listen to what he says in verse 54. When you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately say it's going to rain, and it does. And, and, and when the south wind blows, you say it's going to be hot, and it is. In, in fact, it, what, I, it's funny because the parallel passage of this in the Gospel of Matthew brings out a phrase that I'm sure many of you are familiar with. He, it, 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 the phrase is this. Red sky at morn, what? Sailors take warn. Red sky at night? Sailor's delight. That, that's in the Bible, by the way, Matthew, in Matthew, Matthew chapter 16. But, but, but Jesus, Luke somehow was writing down and didn't get that part. But anyhow, he goes on to say, as he's recording this from Jesus, hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you do not know how to interpret the present moment? the opportunity that lies right now and today before you. I, I love the picture here. We all have our own time-honored ways of forecasting our future, whether it's the weather or whether or not we should plan a picnic or if it's the, in the market and make our investment or whether or not we should, should, should plan our strategies for our business. But here, Jesus, it's as if he's saying, if you had... Held, only held up your finger to the breeze swirling around my ministry, you would feel the tangible facts. You've heard the truth. You know me to be the Son of God. And you realize that with me, it came that time to decide because the present is upon you and the future is before you. So judge what is right. And then the invitation is made by Jesus. Look at verse 47. Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right and instead of waiting for someone else to make that judgment for you? As you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, take the time now. Try hard to be reconciled to him on the way. Or he may drag you off to prison and the judge will turn you over to the officer and the officer will throw you into prison. And I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is coming again, and the judgment it will be upon us. But today, you have a chance to resolve your standing with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the one who will, in fact, perform that judgment. I don't know where you stand here right now, it may be that you, you find yourself in that confusion of not being able to make the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. And so you just march through the day. 
the appeal from the heart of Jesus Christ is that now is the chance to open your heart. I love the words that were found in Hebrews chapter 7. Wise counsel, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today is your moment. And you can make of it what you will. Those who humbly settle their accounts with God through Jesus Christ find that a future lies before them that gives them confidence and resolution and through faith, eternity. That's for us. And that is now. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that even though, Lord, we live in a world confused, unable to make sense of the larger dimensions of life and, Lord, the greatest issues of eternity, Lord, you have chosen to speak to us. You are the one who has created the world. You are the one who inhabits eternity. And you are the one, Lord, who issues that invitation even right now, Lord, to join you and to become your child. To trust you, Lord, for the sacrifice that that you have already paid so that nothing would stand in the way of this moment where right now I can say, Jesus, humbly, I come to you. I confess my sin. I, I, I cast myself to your care. Lord, I accept the sacrifice you have given. And Lord, in that I have now confidence that you love me. And that is a forever love. One that will endure through the fire and then will come out refined. A life, Lord, that is eternal in fellowship with you. This is what I most earnestly desire. And Lord, that is the prayer upon each and every heart in this place. And it is, in the, it is a prayer that is prayed in the powerful name of the one who was and who is and who is coming. Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.